that we are us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we long to know that power in our lives, that we might be in submission to you and that you would be at work in our lives to do the transforming work that only you can. You are the one who changes us. You are the one who makes us like Christ. And I pray that this morning in these few minutes together, that that process would be furthered, that we would quiet our hearts and our minds, that we would set aside all things that would distract, and that we would hear your voice this morning. Father, this is about you and about what you desire to say to us through your word by the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. I'm not sure if you guys knew this or not, but not just anybody can be a nurse. Did you know that? You need a high school diploma. I think nowadays you need a four-year nursing degree. You need to be able to pass a six-hour licensing exam. You need to apply for that license so that you can get the job and actually start caring for people. To be a doctor, there are even more stringent qualifications. Not only your diploma and your four-year bachelor's degree, but then a a seven-and-a-half-year medical college admissions test that most people study two or three hundred hours for. Four hours of medical school, or four, four hours of medical, four years of medical school. And then depending on your specialty, three to eight years of residency. Most doctors are 10 to 15 years in preparation before they are qualified to be a medical doctor. I'm happy about that. I'm glad for those qualifications. Not just anybody can be a nurse or a doctor. When we think about spiritual things, did you know that not just anybody is qualified to be a citizen of heaven? How do we get in? What are the qualifications? I hear people talk about it all the time. Actually, what I hear people talk about the most is saying something like, boy, I hope I've done enough, or I hope when I get to heaven and stand at the gate that he lets me in. I hope I've done it. I hope, I hope all the good things I've done have outweighed the bad things. It's like a spiritual set of scales, and the good outweighs the bad. Well, this is what Paul wants to speak to us about this morning in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. What are the true qualifications for eternity in heaven? And what we're going to find is like many things in life, in terms of our spirituality and in terms of what God has to say, The kingdom of heaven works differently than what we might expect. If you've been with us the last eight or ten weeks, we have been talking about the book of Philippians and we're seeing that Paul is is challenging us as citizens of heaven. How must we live and, and what must we do in these difficult days? We've talked about many things. We've talked about praying for the church. We've talked about advancing the gospel. We've talked about living for Christ and being willing to suffer. Have the mind of Christ. Be willing to work out your salvation. Two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of being a light in dark places. And last week, we talked about serving the church. 
But this morning, in this little book that is so packed full of important things, I think we've come to arguably the most important challenge of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in the first 11 verses of chapter 3, Paul challenges us to know Christ. What does that mean? What we're going to see is that knowing Christ is the qualification for entering into the kingdom of heaven. But I also want you to remember as we look at this that Paul is calling us to a higher standard. He's calling us to go further. He's calling us to go deeper. And he wants us to know that there is more to knowing Christ than just the moment that we trust him for our salvation. That's what we're going to see in these verses. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Now, how many, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. So how many people actually have a Bible with them this morning? Two and three, you guys can raise your hands. I can see you too. Uh, no, Bob, I said a Bible. That is a smartphone. How many people actually have a Bible with them this morning? Okay, now I don't want to embarrass all you smartphone people, but I will tell you this. The only way that you learn to find things in your Bible is to open up a leather and paper Bible and look for it, okay? So don't be shy. We do put it up here in case you don't have a Bible or you're not like Bob and you don't have a smartphone. Uh, but bring your Bible, open your Bible, look at it. This is how we find out where the truths of God's Word actually are so that we can read them for ourselves. So Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1 says this. Let's look at it. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Rejoice, Paul says. Now, you know what rejoice means if you were here two weeks ago because we talked about it. Joy and rejoice and rejoicing come from the same root word as the word grace. And so when Paul says rejoice, he's saying, give thanks for grace. Give thanks for what Christ has done for you. How many times have we heard that already in Philippians? Paul says, I don't get tired of reminding you of this. We've already heard Paul use the word joy and rejoice 11 times, and we're only halfway through the book. In difficulty, we always need to give thanks for grace. Look at verse 2. Paul goes on, look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Anybody read that and say, what in the world does that mean? What is he talking about? Well, you have to understand that there was a group of people in the area that Paul traveled and that he was preaching and sharing the gospel and planting these churches, and they were called Judaizers. And the Judaizers were Jews who had supposedly come to Christ but they were traveling around to all of these cities and they were trying to infiltrate some of these churches that Paul had planted. And what they were basically telling them was, you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. They were telling them, you still need to follow all of the guidelines. You need, to, you need to be careful what you eat. There were a lot of Old Testament guidelines, if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, about what the Jews could eat and what they couldn't. 
And the Judaizers were saying, you have to be careful what you eat, and you have to be careful to follow the law. And they were encouraging the men to still become circumcised, and they were adding all of these restrictions to salvation. And Paul says, look out for these dogs. Now, we don't understand that in our culture, because in our culture, well, I don't personally, because I'm not a dog guy, I know, sorry, don't throw anything, but... In our culture, we almost revere dogs. I mean, now at this point, you know, people take their dogs everywhere. If you love your dog, that's fine. But they sleep in our houses and they sleep in our beds and they eat at our tables and that's what dogs are in our culture. But you have to understand in the ancient Eastern culture that Paul was writing, dogs were despised. They were filthy, vile animals that rooted around in the garbage heap for scraps. And so it was a strong insult, a terrible insult, that shows Paul's disgust for what these people were doing in the churches by calling them dogs. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now again, just I won't go into all the details and take all kinds of time, but in the Old Testament, when God had chosen the people of Israel and called him his own, circumcision was a sign that he had given them to mark them as his people, to the Old Testament Jews as belonging to God. But what Paul says is, we are the circumcision now, the Holy Spirit is the sign of our belonging. That's what he says there in verse number 3. We don't need the sign of circumcision anymore to show that we are Christ because we have the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that at the moment that we believe, the Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us and marks us as belonging to God. Paul says we put no confidence in the flesh. He simply is saying here, it's not about what we do in our bodies or what we do with our bodies that marks us as Christ. Now look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here were these people, let me paint this picture for you, here are these people that said, you have to do this, you have to say this, you have to act like this, and then you can become a Christian, then you can be acceptable to God, then you can be a citizen of heaven. Paul says, we don't have any confidence in the flesh like that, we have the Holy Spirit that marks us as belonging to God. But if someone was going to have confidence in the flesh, it would be me. Now I've had people talk to me, read these verses and say, you know, Paul's a little bit arrogant here, isn't he? Well, he's trying to make a point, and his point is this. If it was what you do in your flesh that qualified you to be a citizen of heaven, Paul would be at the head of the class. That's what he was saying. Paul was a Jew already. He was a Jew by birth. He had been raised this way. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was considered to be the favored tribe. 
of Israel. And he was not only a Jew, and not only was he from the tribe of Benjamin, but he had studied the law. He was a a ruler. He was a religious ruler in the Jewish community. He was a Pharisee. And he believed that he was serving Jehovah by imprisoning and killing Christians. That's what he says here. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. The Jews looked at Christ and they looked at the church as heresy. They didn't believe that Christ was the Messiah. And so all of these Christians, all of these believers... They were against what Jehovah had said and what he had commanded. And so Paul said, because I am a Pharisee, because I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm going to persecute these people. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to throw them in jail. That's what Paul was doing. He was committed to Judaism. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The way that Paul had lived his whole life, everything that he had ever done for the sake of obedience, everything that he had ever done to try to please God, his whole life was turned upside down in one afternoon. In Acts chapter 9, Paul and his posse were on the way to Damascus to find some more Christians to kill. And Christ stopped him in the middle of the road. And put him on his knees and said, Paul, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? Now we come to verse 7. One writer who paraphrased the book of Philippians, it's going to be on the screen for you. One writer said it this way. But those things which made me great in the world are just garbage in Christ's eyes. That's where Paul was. Whatever advantage I thought I gained, I looked at it and I realized that it was actually a detriment when it came to salvation and being made right with Christ. Look at verse 8. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul, on his knees, on that road, on the way to Damascus, looked at everything that he had accomplished and he realized that it was all garbage. Now, I'm reading the ESV this morning, the version that I'm using, and it says there, rubbish. I looked down through 15 or 20 different versions. Almost every one of them says garbage or rubbish. But actually, the word is much, much stronger. The word that Paul uses here is filth. And it's actually the word that was used in the Greek culture to often refer to human excrement. That's what Paul said. Everything that I have done is filth. It's nothing. 
Seemingly, Paul was a good guy. Seemingly, Paul was a righteous guy. He was doing all the things that God wanted him to do, but he said, when I looked at it, I realized that it was garbage. He uses the word loss there twice. I count everything as loss, and I've suffered the loss of all things. The word loss there is a banking term. And what it actually means, what Paul's actually saying here is that what he thought were deposits were actually debits. You understand that, right? Because you have a bank account or a checking account. Paul thought he was putting money in the bank. He thought he was adding to his spiritual bank account. But in fact, every time he did it, he was withdrawing. It was a debit. It was filth. It was worthless. Imagine if you had a savings plan and every week you were going to put $50 in that savings account. And you were looking forward to getting to the end of the year and having four or $5,000 in there. But when you got to the end of the year and you got your statement, instead of having $5,000 in the bank, imagine you were overdrawn $5,000. That's what Paul is saying here. Not only am I not gaining anything, I'm losing. I'm overdrawn. So Why? Why did Paul throw all of his heritage, all of his efforts, all of his accomplishments into the trash? What does he say there in the verse? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The word surpassing there means above and beyond. It means not even close. What I have done is nothing compared to knowing Christ. The word knowing there refers to knowledge and doctrine and wisdom gained about Christ. Everything that I know about Christ is so much more valuable than anything I was ever trying to do. The word knowing there carries with it the idea of functional knowledge based on interaction. What is Paul saying? He's saying the only thing that really matters is knowing Christ. He gave it all up to trust Christ. To gain Christ, in fact, he says there in verse 8, I counted it all a loss to gain Christ. The phrase gain there, to gain there literally means to trade up. It's an exchange. And I want you to understand this this morning before we go any further. When it comes to being a citizen of heaven, when it comes to being a Christ follower, when it comes to having a a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that secures our eternity in heaven, I want you to understand that there is an exchange here that needs to take place. You need to set aside everything all of your confidence in self, all of your efforts to please God so that you can cling to Christ. You can't have both. That's what Paul says. I gave it up to gain Christ. We can't hang on to who we are. We can't hang on to what we're doing, what we're accomplishing. We must release it in order to trust Christ. Paul was humbled on the road to Damascus. He was humbled by the power of God. He was humbled by the holiness of Jesus Christ and humbled by the futility of his own efforts to produce righteousness. 
Look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, when I give up everything that I am and have and have done to gain Christ, then I am found in him. The word found is in the passive tense. Paul was found by Christ. When he was walking down the road to Damascus, Paul was not looking for Christ. Christ found him. What happened in Paul's heart and life? What happened is the same thing that happens in yours and mine when we trust Christ. God opens our eyes to the truth. And he draws us to Jesus Christ. And Christ saves us. Paul contrasts these two kinds of righteousness for us one more time before he moves on. Not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, given to us by grace. Let me read a couple of verses for you in Romans chapter 3, where Paul talks about this again. Listen to these verses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a, or a payment or the satisfaction of God's justice by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. Look at this last verse, verse 26 of Romans 3. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I know that most of you understand this, but I make sure that we cover this every time we come to these passages of Scripture because I still come across people that I have those conversations with that say, boy, I sure hope that when I get there, he lets me in. Friends, listen. If this depends on your righteousness or my righteousness, then no, you will not get in. You have no hope. I have no hope. It is only because of his righteousness. This is what Paul says. It is to show the righteousness of God that he is just, that he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What is the qualification to be a citizen of heaven? It is faith in Jesus Christ, and that is all. There's nothing else. He is the justifier. That is our qualification to be a citizen of heaven. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 10. That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection 
from the dead. And we could look at this and say, wait a second. I thought Paul said he already knew Christ. He already said that, that I may know him. He already knows Christ, and he did. He had trusted Christ for salvation. But there is so much more to know Christ. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know Pastor Tim? Maybe not everybody, but how many of you know Pastor Tim? Okay. I know Pastor Tim. I know Pastor Tim. When he was 11 and I was 12, we played with our Tonka trucks together in a dirt pile outside my house. And a gravel pile in the middle of the campus where we lived, we took shovels and we made a ramp and we jumped our bikes together until the spokes broke. And then we started our first business together, TNM's bike shop, in his parents' basement. This is true. And we fixed all the neighborhood kids' bikes. Mostly it was our bikes that we broke because of all the stupid stuff we were doing with them, but that's what we did. Tim and I spent time way up in the top reaches of his father's barn's haymow packing hay in July in the summers when we were growing up, sweating to death. Tim and I shared a room for two weeks on choir tour one time. And that's where he told me he was kind of interested in Pamela Peterson from Upper Blackville, New Brunswick. Remember last week when Tim, or a couple weeks ago when Tim said he and my brother were mountain men, or wanted to be mountain men, and they built a cabin out in the woods? I could show you where that cabin is, because I was there. I didn't want to be a mountain man, but I was there, and I do know where it was. I stood on the platform of a church in Miramichi, New Brunswick, wearing a tuxedo when he promised Pam that he would love her for the rest of his life. And for the past 18 years, we've been working together here in this community. Some of you know Pastor Tim. I know him. Paul says, I know Christ. I'm a citizen of heaven. But there's more, that I may know him beyond what it means to be saved. Let me just suggest to you this morning that Paul gives us three levels of knowing Christ. The first one is that, to know him. Now certainly that has begun at salvation, but it is not finished. This is not the end. We must add to our knowledge of Christ through Scripture. It's not enough for you to trust Him by faith. It's not enough that you become a citizen of heaven. You must know Him. You must lean into Him and learn His heart and His love for you and this world. And that takes time and effort and desire. 
Paul also says that we need to experience his power. As we grow in our knowledge of him and as our lives begin to change, we begin to experience his power. You see, the power of Jesus Christ gives us new life. But the power of Jesus Christ also transforms us. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were, we were dead in our sins, but now we're alive and we can grow. Why? Because of that power. The Greek word here is dunamis. It means miraculous power. It's used 120 times in the New Testament. It's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 1.6 that we looked at the first week we opened this book. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's his power. It's what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2.13 where he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the power of Christ changing us. That sounds great, right? We want to change. If you truly know Christ, if you love him, you want to change, you want to grow. We want to set aside our old way of life with its bad habits and its struggles and its addictions and its pain. And we can when we experience God's power, but we'll not experience God's power until we lean into knowing him. We go beyond the surface and dig deeply into his word. And then Paul says, thirdly, not only to know him, to experience his power, but here's number three, to share his suffering. We can't help it as human beings, we're tempted to think that the more we grow, the more Christ-like we are, the easier our lives will be. The reason why my life is painful is because I'm pushing against what God wants for me. The reason why I'm struggling is because I don't want to do the things that God wants me to do. And the more I grow, and that, by the way, that can be the case, that might be the case, depending on how you're living your life. But then we think if I could only just get on track, if I could only just do what God wants me to do, then my life will get easier. We think that because we treat God like a vending machine. We've talked about this before. We put in prayer, we put in reading God's word, we put in going to church, we put in giving some offering, maybe even put in a little service now and again, and then we push the button for what we want. And when it doesn't happen, we wonder why. But if God's desire is that we be like Christ, and we know that it is, then let's think about this. What was the most important time in the life of Jesus Christ on this earth? What was the seminal moment in his life? It was when he suffered and died on the cross for our sin. That's why he came to earth. It's what he came to do. So how can we truly be like him if we don't suffer? How will we learn to trust him fully until everything is taken away? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 11 says this, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our flesh. The more we know Christ, the more we see Jesus as our all, the more we see Jesus as our righteousness, the freer we will be to relinquish everything we once thought was valuable. That's why Paul could say that. That's why Paul could say, everything in my life, it's garbage. I let it all go. That's what suffering does. It strips everything away until we see Christ. What qualifies you to be a citizen of heaven? If you died and stood before Christ today, what would you say? Would you whip out your resume and say, well, God, please let me in. Look at how I lived. Look at what I've done. Or would you say, please look at the righteousness of Christ? Are you confident that your right standing before God is because of Christ's righteousness and not because of your life? If you're not confident of that, then we need to talk about salvation. Come talk to me afterwards. I want to talk with you about it. But if you are, if your confidence is in knowing Christ, if your faith is in his righteousness, then let me ask you, are you growing in your knowledge of Christ? What are you doing every week to know him more? Are you experiencing his power in your life? Are you experiencing any victory over sin? Or are you still at the same place that you were two years ago, five years ago? Are you sharing in a suffering? Are you willing to relinquish everything for Christ? When you know Christ well enough to be secure in his love, then you are coming to know Christ on a deeper level. That's what Paul is calling us to here. Citizens of heaven, know Christ. Grow deeper. Trust him more that your life might be transformed. Would you stand with us this morning as we close our service in a song? Father, we stand here before you this morning and we want to acknowledge that we know it is only the righteousness of Christ by which we can be saved. Thank you for your grace that brings us to Christ, the faith that we exercise in him for salvation. Father, I pray that everyone here this morning would be sure of their standing before you in Jesus Christ. And then, Father, would you challenge us today to know him, to draw close, to learn his heart and his desires, to experience his power in our lives, Lord, that we might not be the same, but that we would be changed to be the people you are calling us to be. And, Father, even draw us deeper that we might share in the sufferings of Christ so that all of our attachments would be stripped away and that we might live wholly for you. Father, you are the king, and I pray that we would live that way in our lives on a daily basis that others may see Christ. Thank you for this time together today. 
We pray that you will encourage us and challenge us as we go out into this community to share your love and the light of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. I hope you have a great week.